Please turn with me in your Bibles again this evening to the Gospel of John and chapter 12. John chapter 12 in our Bibles this evening. And if you were with us this morning, you know that this is where we spent the bulk of our time considering together the triumphal entry on Palm Sunday. And I want us just to refresh our memory about some of the flow of, of that particular event. Verse number 12 if you're here in John 12, look at verse number 12. You can see, again, the reference there to many people coming to the feast. And that feast, we noted, is the Feast of Passover. And multiple reports uh, say that there could have been as many as between 2 to 3 million people that were convening in Jerusalem during this week. And the end of that same verse, verse 12, tells us, that uh, those people heard that Jesus was coming. And you might recall that uh, he was coming from Bethany, which is just over uh, the, the Mount of Olives on the east side of the city. And as he walked the two-mile route descending down that hillside, verse number 13 uh, again tells us that they, uh, many people took these branches of, of date palms that uh, could grow as high as 10 feet. And they were a symbol of triumph and victory. And, and as they waved those branches, again, verse 13, they cried out, Hosanna, which is to say, save us, save us now. And then they followed up, blessed is the who? Blessed is the king that cometh in the name of the Lord. And remember, they were reciting words that come from a messianic uh, uh, reference in Psalm one, uh, 118. So this is, at this point, really full-throttle acclamation that Jesus is their long-awaited Messiah and King. Save us now, O great King. This is, this is what they're calling out. And in verse number 14, Jesus chose a particular mode of transportation that fulfilled, remember, the prophecy of Zechariah that their King would come on a young donkey. And this grand procession, we learn from the combination of all four Gospels, um, continued right down the descent of the Mount of Olives into the Kidron Valley um, at the base of the mountain, and then up into Jerusalem again through the Eastern Gate. Remember, it went right up into the temple compound and, and the courtyard of the temple, and the shouts of adoration just continued to ring out. And it was an incredible scene, and various uh, scripture connections fill us with joy, and they uh, strengthen our faith, and really stir us to anticipate an even greater series of scenes that is yet to come, and that all true believers will get to see firsthand. And yet, there is another set of connections that is very sobering. That temple compound was large enough to fit uh, several full-size football fields between the temple and a Roman military citadel named Antonio Fortress that was on the northeastern uh, edge of the compound. Many think that it was on a ledge outside of that citadel where just a few days later, in this same week, the Roman governor named Pilate, after 
interrogating Jesus and finding no fault, came out and addressed the, the people and actually offered, remember, to release Jesus. The people, though, called for the release of Barabbas, who was essentially a, we're told he was a murderer. He committed murder in the insurrection. He was a murdering terrorist. And Pilate, upon hearing that, said, what do you want me to do with Jesus? And the people cried out, crucify him. Pilate responded by saying, what evil hath he done? And the people just simply cried out again, crucify him. And, and later they would add, his blood be on us and on our children. And we, of course, don't know exactly who was in that route of the triumphal entry and, and exactly who was in that, this crowd that was calling for the crucifixion. But the sheer numbers and, and the prevailing messages would indicate that, that there was some significant overlap. That there was a number that were in that crowd initially that were saying, Save us, great king, save us now. Who ended up just days later crying out, Crucify him, crucify him. His blood be on us and on our children. They seemed so convinced just a few days before. They were willing to declare their allegiance even in the face of, of the opposition and the threats of, of persecution from their leaders. But something in that profession and something in that homage was, was insincere and incomplete and it left them vulnerable. And they turned so dramatically, so fast, how can that happen? Perhaps even in just the hearing of it, you would ask, how do kids that grow up in our homes and joyfully sing our hymns and, and even pray for others um, to get saved, how do those very kids end up at best apathetic and in some cases, as you know, even antagonistic to scripturally faithful ministries? How do adults that have stood in pulpits and preached or, or have served in, in multiple other capacities in a local church, how can those adults end up far removed from something that resembles biblical Christianity and faith and practice? We, of course, don't have all the answers about the circumstances and individual lives and individual hearts. But the scripture does give us some case studies, as it were, to explore and to learn from. And the case we're going to explore together tonight involves just moving forward right here in, in the Gospel of John, one chapter. If you would just flip over to chapter number 13, and we're going to read the first two verses as we uh, continue tonight. John chapter 13 and verse 1. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour was come that he should depart out of this world unto the Father, having loved his own which were in the world, he loved them unto the end. And supper being ended, the devil, having now put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. Here it says, the devil put it into his heart. If you look down to verse number 
27, in this same chapter, it says, After the sop, Satan entered into him. And we want to consider together tonight Judas as a case study in spiritual desertion or spiritual defection. And when we start to accumulate information about Judas, many have noted that the scripture uh, emphasizes um, his, his surname on multiple occasions, and the emphasis there is worth contemplation. Eleven times the scripture refers to him, as you can see in verse number two, as Judas Iscariot. And that word Iscariot is from a Hebrew surname, which simply means men of Kiriath. But it's interesting that the Bible mentions it again and again. Now, you start to look at Kiriath in the scripture, and there was a Kiriath, a city by that name in Moab. It's referred to in Amos chapter 2. But there was also a city by that name in Judah. Joshua chapter 15, verse 25 refers to it. And all are agreed that as an apostle of the Lord, he most certainly would have been from Judah, not Moab. Kiriath in Judah, as we start to narrow in there, was located in a district um, close to Jerusalem. Now you start to think about some of the geography and the connections. We know that our Lord was born in Bethlehem of Judea, or Judah. So he was born in Judah, but he's not raised in Judah. He was raised where? He was raised in Nazareth of Galilee. And as you continue to look into the situation, all in our Lord's inner group of disciples were also from Galilee except Judas. And at that time, there's scriptural texts, or you can read first century. We know that there was, that there was at that time, uh, Judeans generally looked down upon Galileans as something like second-rate Jews. When Nicodemus, you remember, made, made a gesture in defense of the Lord before the Jewish leadership in, uh, back in chapter 7, verse 52, <clears throat> others responded and, and answered him saying, Are you also Galilee? And then he said, Search and look, for out of Galilee ariseth no prophet. I mean, we were not expecting any religious leader to come from there. That was the opinion of those in Judea and the surrounding area there. The, the point is that Judas went against the prevailing kind of public opinion in the south, and he joined up with this northern Galilean leader to whom others were gathering out of, of various quarters of the land. There is room uh, to, to think that he may well have sacrificed some acceptance from family and friends to do that. And, and when someone is willing to sacrifice and kind of throw their lot in like that, who would have doubted if he was sincere? We, we don't actually have a record of the first encounter with Jesus, but when we read of the call of other disciples, we read of them leaving their occupations behind. And on one occasion, Peter actually said, Behold, we have left all and followed you. There's no hint anywhere 
that when Peter or anyone else expressed something like that, that they thought that Judas was an exception. It appeared that, that for Judas to join himself up to follow Christ, that there was some sacrifice involved in that at multiple levels. In addition to that, it is very clear that Judas was an instrument that was used to promote the cause of Christ in the lives of others. The first mention of his name comes after uh, Christ's night of prayer when he chose 12. And I want to have you go ahead and turn to Mark chapter 3. Um, Mark chapter 3. And after that night in prayer and, and the Lord choosing his 12, that 12 included, um, included Judas. And uh, there's a record of that in Matthew uh, but also in Mark 3, and I'm having us go there, Mark chapter 3 and verse 14. Notice uh, it says that he, referring to Jesus, ordained 12. And look at what he ordained them to do, that they should be with him, and that he might send them forth to preach, to have power to heal sicknesses, then to cast out devils, and then we end up getting a, a, a description of uh, we get all of their names, the names of the twelve, and notice in verse number 19, it says, and Judas Iscariot, which also betrayed him, and they went into a house. So, so Judas was one of the ones ordained to be with him, ordained to go out and preach, ordained to uh, perform these miracles, and he certainly must have, he must have preached, he must have been empowered along with the other eleven to heal the sick and cast out demons. As an apostle, he held a position of trust and confidence. There are two references in the Gospels to, uh, to Judas um, holding the bag or, or the purse, we might say. Or he, he, was, he was the treasurer of the apostolic team. He was the one that, that held on to the money. He evidently was recognized to be so gifted and trusted by others that uh, he, he was made their treasure. Giftedness and even effectiveness in ministry are no sure signs that a man is a genuine child of God. If you've been with us for our studies in the Sermon on the Mount, as we tried to understand what, is, what are some of the main thrusts of that message, we've, we've seen that there is an evangelistic appeal in that message, and and part of that comes right from the conclusion of Matthew chapter 7. I'm going to mention uh, two of those verses again tonight. But Jesus said in Matthew 7 and verse 22, Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name? In thy name cast out devils, and in thy name done many wonderful works, and then will I profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. Yes, Judas had done all of the above. He had, he had preached. And he had, and he had healed. And he had cast out demons. Judas also was regarded by Christ as a friend. He was regarded by Christ as a friend. In fact, in Matthew 26 and verse 50, you don't need to turn. When Judas approached the Lord to betray him with a kiss, Jesus said unto him, 
friend, wherefore art thou come? And that Greek word is expressive of the idea of a comrade or a partner. And you may think, well, he just used what was a, an appropriate greeting in the day. But there are several Old Testament passages, and I, I want to have us to start to turn uh, to the book of Psalms and turn to Psalm 41. First of all, there, there are several Old Testament passages which speak prophetically of, of the relationship between uh, Jesus and, and Judas and even give us the feelings of the Lord about Judas. Notice in Psalm 41, I'm just going to dip down in the verse number 9. Notice the Lord saying, Yea, mine own familiar friend in whom I trusted, which did eat of my bread, hath lifted up his heel against me. Go over to Psalm 55, just a couple of pages forward in your Bible, Psalm 55. And look at verse number 12 and 13. Notice Psalm 55, verse 12. For it was not an enemy that reproached me. Then I could have borne it. Neither was it he that hated me, that magnified himself against me. Then what I would have hid myself. But it was thou, a man, my equal, my guide, and mine acquaintance. We took sweet counsel together and walked under the house of God in company. Now, I know that there are mysteries here that our minds can't completely grasp. Jesus, though, on several occasions foretold that one was going to betray him. And yet he worked with Judas as a comrade and was brokenhearted at his demise. And then we learn, as we're just trying to put together a little picture of Judas, we learn from the verses we started in, and if you'll go back to John chapter 13, we'll we'll see it again. We learn that Judas followed Christ all the way up to the Last Supper. Before the Feast of the Passover, verse 1 says, and then verse 2, and and supper being ended. This is referring to that Last Supper in the upper room on the, the eve of the Lord's crucifixion. And Judas is still there. I'm drawing attention to that tonight because there were many others who abandoned Christ sooner than Judas. At one point in John chapter 6, the scripture records at the end of that bread of life discourse that many of his disciples walked back and went no more with him. So there had already been mass desertion. The apostles knew that the authorities had threatened the lives of the Lord and were intent on destroying him. They, they actually tried to dissuade him from going to this very Passover on that account. And when they saw that he would not be deterred, you may remember that Thomas said, let's just all go that we may die with him. Well, Judas was still with him up to this point. Judas was willing to bear along with the apostolic company some of the reproach that they were bearing, that Jesus was bearing, and that they were bearing for being one of his. He accompanied the disciples, again, right up to this last supper. 
But the fact is that he was a fraud. He was a traitor. And his betrayal was actually premeditated. Matthew 26 and verse 16 says he sought opportunity to betray him. Mark chapter 14 and verse 11, after meeting with the Jewish leadership and agreeing to a price, again it says he sought how he might conveniently betray him. And as we're just accumulating again still information about Judas, we have to add this last component that Judas is today in hell. Judas is in hell. And, and in, in mentioning that, some of you may say that's so obvious. Some of you may have heard a question about that. There are some I had a deacon in one ministry who actually questioned whether Judas was an unbeliever and in hell. Some, some say that, that Judas was just temporarily overcome with the temptation of money that he actually hoped Jesus was going to perform a miracle and escape out of the hands of his captors. And, and some have seen his suicide as evidence of a genuinely contrite heart for his sin. But there is much evidence in the scripture that points to the fact that Judas was, in fact, an unbeliever. For one thing, in Luke 22 and verse 22, Jesus himself pronounced a woe upon him. And the pronouncement of woe on the lips of the Lord was a pronouncement that was directed entirely to those that were recipients of his judgment. It's the expression he used in the condemnation of the Pharisees and of entire cities that did not believe he was God. Mark chapter 14, Jesus said, It would have been good for Judas if he had never been born That certainly had to be in view of his eternal condition. John chapter 17. Jesus again refers to Judas as the son of perdition. That's an expression used of the Antichrist. It's actually one of the descriptions of hell. He's a son of hell. A son of perdition. Christ actually called him a devil in John 6. And we're seeing here in John 13 again in verse 2 that the devil put it into his heart to betray him and verse 27 that the devil entered into him the devil entered in and took possession of him he was not a believer now brethren with all of this information accumulated the questions that we have to ask tonight are very obvious how how could someone who sacrificed the approval of of family and friends to follow this northern Galilee leader? How could someone who displayed such giftedness and effectiveness in preaching and doing ministry for Christ, how could someone who was regarded as a comrade to Christ, even when others had already turned away, How could someone like that end up with such an awful end? And again, we don't know all of the answers, but but we do want to explore the ones that the Scripture points to. 
And, and we've noted this one, stated very obviously, we do know that Satan ultimately entered into him and took possession of him in a unique way. There is another characteristic that is noted on several occasions, and that is that Judas was covetous of material gain. Back in chapter 12, and we were there this morning, briefly saw this scene where Mary, the sister of Martha and Lazarus, when she made this extravagant display of her devotion by pouring um, the costly ointment on the Lord, it was Judas that, first of all, objected and offered criticism. And, and when he did, he veiled his criticism as a desire to help the poor. But the Holy Spirit lets us in on the true secret of his heart. In fact, you can just look back there, John chapter 12 and verse number 6 says this, he said, not that he cared for the poor, but because he was a what? Because he was a thief and had the bag and bare what was put therein. Judas had been at least skimming off the top and making himself rich through, at some level, he's, he's getting gain through the money that had been coming into the apostolic company. And when it came down to the carrying out of, be, of the betrayal, he ended up selling the Lord as you know, for 30 pieces of silver, the price of a slave. And brethren, I, I do mean to, provoc to be provocative. I don't mean to just be sensational, but truly provocative. The forces of hell are always willing uh, and, and rejoicing to see men sell out Christ and his gospel and anything good for material gain. This character trait trait is clearly stated about judas he was covetous for material gain another that is not as clearly stated but but is implied is that judas was following christ for gain that he could get out of it in general there were many of course, that had high hopes that Jesus was the Messiah, that he was going to overthrow the Roman bondage. And, and for many, it was entirely a pursuit of comfort and convenience and, and, and maybe bitterness with the Romans and, and, and just wanting to overthrow them, to gain, to get the upper hand, to again be recognized as, as uh, a great country and in charge. Many sought, remember, to make him a king. Other of the apostles sought to secure a high position in his government when he became a king. You remember uh, the mother of James and John asking for their sake if they could be administrators in his kingdom. But what we sometimes forget is that after she had asked, all of the disciples were upset with James and John because they wanted to be there too. Multiple ones joined up to Jesus with ambition to end up on top. Others would be corrected. 
Judas would not. There's some very sober warnings that we should heed as we consider the life of Judas. And I hate to even mention this first one. It isn't what we're driving at tonight. But I think it should be stated. And one warning is to never be too surprised when a bad man, or for that matter, a bad woman, but when a bad man that looks spiritual is found in a church and even in the leadership of a church. Jesus, in his kingdom parables in Matthew 13, said that it is one of the tactics of the devil to sow tares in the midst of wheat to impede the progress. Don't be disillusioned yourself if you end up witnessing something of that in a local church. But a second warning that gets much closer to the specifics of Judas, and I'll just say it in the words of Jesus himself, take heed and beware of covetousness. Take heed and beware of covetousness. That's Luke chapter 12 and verse 15. Think about the the warning of the Apostle Paul in 1 Timothy 6. The love of money is the root of all evil, all kinds of evil. They that will be rich fall into a temptation and snare and many foolish and hurtful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition. The will to be rich is a destructive trap. So take heed and beware of covetousness. But a third sober warning to receive from the life of Judas is to not regard lightly any sin that is harbored in your heart. Do not regard lightly any sin that is harbored in your heart. Christ repeatedly confronted Judas. Yes, he's, he's speaking to others. <clears throat> but as he's speaking to others, Judas is in the hearing. And certainly Christ is communicating truth intended for Judas's heart. In the hearing of Judas, Jesus said, A man's life consisteth not in the abundance of the things which he possesses. Jesus warned on multiple occasions that you can gain the whole world and lose your own soul, and that nothing you can have can be exchanged for your soul. There was a time when Judas had opportunities to respond to that kind of preaching, that kind of challenge, that kind of exhortation. But it all went unheeded. Dear friend, there is a time when opportunity runs out for every sinner. Do not lightly regard any sin that is harbored in your heart. And there's a warning in the life of Judas to examine the nature of whatever attachment to Christ we claim to have. Some people find in 
Christianity a cause to throw their life into. Perhaps it's, you know, campaigning for moral issues in the name of Christ. Perhaps it's even the cause of evangelism and missions. And I've, I've seen young people from some of the younger children and teenagers riding up that had a burden to tell people about Jesus and pass out tracts and be involved in evangelistic type endeavors that today don't even remotely darken a church or claim to have an attachment to Christ. The fact is, church history tells us that people have gone to mission fields motivated by a desire to give their life to some good cause, but without a true saving relationship to Christ. John Wesley left England to come to the colony of Georgia for that very purpose. And when he went back and people asked him what he most learned, he said, the thing I most learned is that I that went to the new world to convert the heathen had never been converted to Christ myself. There are people who try Christianity as if it's on the level of a self-help program. In some cultures, it's a way to advance my social status in society, even the prospects maybe of financial and material gain. In some cases, it's just entirely cultural. I mean, a man's family is a family of Christians, and he never thought of being anything else. The little girl grew up, and her mom, and her dad, and, <coughs> and, and siblings, and aunts and uncles in some cases, and cousins, we're all Christians. Grandma and grandpa are Christians. I never thought of being anything else. In some cases, perhaps it's primarily an intellectual attachment. I mean, after, you know, considering all the merits of the case, Christianity seems the best religion. I certainly don't see it in Buddhism or Hinduism or, or any of the cults under Christianity. I mean, I see, I see evangelical Christianity to make the most sense. And, and so people accept it. But what happens... When there is a real, genuine cross. A cross of shame. A cross of reproach. A cross of suffering. A cross of sacrifice. What happens when there's a real, genuine cross like that in the path of your discipleship and your Christian pilgrimage? For Judas, it does seem that it was the determination on the part of Jesus to actually go through with the cross that was where he checked out with the Lord and decided to go get at least something out of it for the years that I've been following him. For Jesus, as we can make a connection between the triumphal entry we explored this morning as a foretaste in an even greater one that is still coming, that is yet future to us. For Jesus, so the cross would come before the reigning. And it had to be that way for our sins to be forgiven. We celebrate at the Lord's table that his body was broken for us and his blood was shed for us. And he wanted us to remember that he did it for us. 
And as he went to the cross before the throne, likewise, true disciples embrace the cross and the cross life. That is, true disciples of Christ don't get offended at the reproach. And they are willing to wait for eternal glory and eternal riches. They gladly identify with Christ to the very end, even when it costs. And I want to ask tonight, do you know what it is to be increasingly humbled and thankful for the love of God to you in Christ? Do you know what it is to find prayer and, and, and personal devotional time, while sometimes a real battle, but do you know what it is that other times find it the delight of your life? Do you know what it is to find your own heart increasingly weaned off of feasting on the delights of here and now and, and, and increasingly rejoicing in serving the Lord for the advancement of his eternal kingdom, no matter what success it, it appears or lack of it in the eyes of others? Do you find evidence of the Spirit of God at works of doing sinful passions and, and the inner man increasingly coming under the domain of the Lord Jesus Christ? Do you find even more specifically perhaps a, a growing faith that though it is tested and it is tried sometimes by fiery trials, that it comes out even more pure? And that faith comes out even more supportive of sweet surrender to the will of God. And I know we kind of, that's kind of like a shotgun shell that goes everywhere. But what we're really exploring is, is there vital attachment? Not just attached to the bark of the tree, not just attached to the external to, to the church activity and church attendance and, and even church membership and the external things. But are you attached to the life flow of the vine? Vital attachment is expressed in a conviction that, that I was made to know God and enjoy him and serve him but my sin has brought me alienation from god and death and and my sinful condition is so hopeless that deliverance from sin and restoration of a true relationship with god is something i could never earn it has to be completely outside of me it's got to be something given to me and i see in the gospel of christ the only salvation, the only Savior, the only means of forgiveness and, and reconciliation with God. And I'm motivated to embrace Christ exclusively that I might know God and enjoy God, that he might change my life into something that would glorify him forever. Dear friend, are you so attached to Christ that way that even when others walk away for any of a number of reasons. You would follow the Lord right up to the cross and bearing 
the reproach of the cross, you would say in the words of the psalmist in Psalm 73, verse 25, Whom have I in heaven but thee? There is none upon earth that I desire beside thee. And you would turn to the Lord and say, Lord, whom shall I go? Thou hast the words of eternal life. I believe and are sure that thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Let us all be cautioned today on this palm sunday let us all be cautioned about the nature of temporary enthusiasm and let us all by faith embrace the christ that went to the cross for us before the throne that was rightfully his let us follow him as his true disciples Would you bow your heads and would you close your eyes?